My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were standing outside the city of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, on a day when the sun turned to dark and the earth quaked, you might have heard these words spoken from the lips of a man, bloodied and torn, hanging on a rough wooden cross. His naked body shamefully displayed while groups of men and women surrounded him, laughing at him and taunting him as he suffered. Only with the greatest of effort would he be able to lift himself up, gasping for breath, and speak words of comfort to his mother who stood amongst the crowd watching her oldest son slowly die. Gradually, he would be overcome with weakness in his broken body. But just before he breathed his last breath, you would hear him give a loud cry and say, It is finished. Would you know this man? Would you understand who he was and why he died if you had lived on that day nearly 2,000 years ago? Is there any way that you or anyone there that day could have known about the terrible suffering that this man would endure and the great loneliness that he would feel? Well, the answer to those questions, at least in part, is found in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 has been called the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. And it stands as the first in a trilogy of shepherd psalms. Psalm 22, we see the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Of course, Psalm 23, everyone knows Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, we have the chief shepherd, I'm sorry, the, 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 the great shepherd who lives for and cares for his sheep. And then when we get to Psalm 24, we see the chief shepherd who returns in glory to reward his faithful sheep. By the way, I'll give you a hint. The shepherd in those psalms is Jesus. Just throw that one out there for you. Now, when we consider Psalm 22, it breaks into two uh, major portions. The first one is in verse uh, 20, or rather the first verse 1 to verse 21. I I call it the suffering Savior. The second portion of the psalm is from verse 22 to the end, and it's the glorified Savior. In fact, this psalm is, these two parts of the psalm are so different that some people have suggested they weren't ever originally one psalm. They were just two psalms that got put together. I don't think that's true, though. This is a psalm that was written by David. It's written in the first person as if this was his own perspective. And, and he, the problem, though, as we read it, is that there's no point in the life of David in which we can find this kind of circumstance. It just doesn't fit David at all. This this psalm does not describe an illness. It describes an execution. 
And these words that are poetically true of David's life and his experience became literally true of the brutality of Christ's crucifixion. And so as we read uh, Psalm 22 this morning, and we're going to read it together, but as we read it, I want you to keep that in mind. I hope that what you will see in Psalm 22 is a powerful and graphic display of the death of Jesus Christ. But not just his death, his glorification. But I'd like to read this together and I'd like to go through it a portion at a time. Because we have the suffering Savior, the first 21 verses. And this passage is really significant because what the psalmist is going to do in this opening uh, two-thirds of the psalm is there's really kind of three different sections, but all three of them really drive the same point home. He's going to talk about the suffering he's enduring, but then he's going to talk about his perspective on the Lord. And so I want to read it, and I want us to see how this goes. So let's start in the very beginning. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent This is the suffering Savior. This is the suffering Savior. You hear how he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, we know that. That's, that, that Jesus quoted that, right? We read that in, in, in Mark 15. Jesus, hanging on the cross, spoke those words. Do you think God really abandoned him? Did God really turn his back? Did he really turn his back? Did he really forsake? If he didn't, here's, here's a question for you. If he didn't forsake him, then was Jesus lying? When he cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God turn his back on Jesus? Did he turn his back on the psalmist? When David says here, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why are you so far from helping me? In the words of my brother. He says, I cry in the daytime, but you're not here. And in the night season, and I am not silent. You know, it's interesting here what he's doing. He's praying, right? He's crying out to God day and night, continuously. He's praying. What kind of desperation must he have? He cries out to the Lord. Is it possible? Is it possible that God actually turned his back? I think the answer, at least as we look at it when we look at the person of Christ, is yes. 
because of your sin and my sin, God turned his back. He turned away from his son. What I love about this song is he doesn't just cry out, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. Because he says in verse 3, but you are holy. You're holy. Now, i got to be honest with you. Um, when I'm feeling like God is not hearing my prayers, when I'm feeling frustrated and alone because nothing seems to work and I cry out to God and nothing happens, I don't usually, I don't usually look for God's holiness. You understand? Because holiness is what separates him from us. Because he cannot sin, nor can he allow sin into his presence. And you and I are what? Sinners. Sinners. So if God can't allow sin into his presence, and I'm praying to him, God, I need your help. God, I need your presence. I need you here. I don't usually think about his holiness as a comforting thought, right? I want to think about God's love, his mercy, his compassion, his generosity, his faithful commitment. God, you promised. That I believe you. I don't want to say, God, you're holy. But here's the thing. This is really important. Why does David... Here in verse 3, say, but you are holy. Why does he focus on the holiness of God? Because if God is not holy, if God is not holy, God is not holy, can we trust God to keep his word? No. See, the holiness of God, that thing that separates him from us because he's perfect and we're not, because he's sinless and we're sinners. That thing, that holiness, is also what guarantees that God's word is true and can be depended on. And so the holiness of God is what David clings to when he feels like he is abandoned. God, it seems like you're so far away. I cry to you and nothing works. But you are holy. He doesn't say, but you are loving. Oh, God, you never let anything bad happen to me. You love me. You never let anything, you never let anything happen because, God, you are so loving and kind and good that you would never let anybody suffer, right? That's not what he says. God, you are holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel. Your name is exalted. And then he says this, our fathers trusted in you. Look back, God, as I think back in the history, and I think back about my ancestors, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, all those people, all those years, they all trusted in you. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted you. They were not ashamed. God, you didn't fail them, and you're holy. You're holy. So I know that you'll do what's right. I know that you will do what you said you'll do because you're holy. And anything other than complete truth and complete trustworthiness is not holiness. God. That's what David is clinging to. That's what the psalmist clings to. I'd submit to you, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ clung to. 
Father was holy because he hung there on the cross. He suffered because of God's holiness. But he also believed that God's holiness was the key to his deliverance. Now there's more than that. Let's read some more here. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while I was on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Another interesting passage. Like I said, it goes back and forth here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you're holy. It's I'm a worm and not a man. My enemies have surrounded me. They, they treat me with disrespect and disgust. They're, they're, they don't even treat me as if I'm human. And then it's, but, but Lord, from birth, you've taught me to trust you, depend on you. Now think about this description here. He says, I'm a worm, I'm not a man. He's not saying that about himself. I think what he's doing is he's reflecting what his enemies have said. This is what, this is what people have said about me. I'm not even human. They don't even treat me like that. They treat me like a worm. You just step on them. And you don't even give it another thought. Because it's not human. It's not really worth anything. There's no consequence whatsoever. He says, I'm a, I'm a reproach. I am despised. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. And what do they say? He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue me. I would submit to you, by the way, that this, uh, well, first of all, this, this particular passage right here, verses 6, 7, 8, you can go to Isaiah chapter 53. You can see similar statements made there about the suffering servant of the Lord. Despised and rejected of men. And we hid our faces from him. But then you can fast forward to the passage we read in Mark 15. You see it? Jesus there on the cross, and the, 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 the leaders wagging their heads, mocking him. Hey, get down off the cross if you're really the Messiah. Come on down here. Save yourself. You trust in God. Surely God will save you. By the way, there's a lie here in verse 8 that I need to point out to you. This is a really common lie, too. What's the lie? Well, they say this. He trusts in the Lord and let him deliver let him deliver him since he delights in him. Hey, if you trust in God, then God will take care of you. No problems, no worries. You get in the bind, just crowd to him. He'll take care of you. Because if God really loved you, he would care for you, right? If God really loved you, he would deliver you. He would never let you suffer if he really loved you. You hear that line? You ever hear that line anywhere? I think so. criticism of David, the criticism of the Lord is based on, on, on a misunderstanding, on a long view of God. 
It's the assumption that if God is God, and if God is good, then God would not allow his people to suffer. Not only do we know this is not true from experience ourselves, but again, all you have to do is look at Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Was God not good? Did God not love his son? rejected of men, mocked, even as he hangs, dying. Let him deliver him. Let God deliver him. He trusts in him. The lie is that if God loved you, he would never let you suffer. God loved his son. And not only did he let him suffer, he sent him. He is a suffering Savior. That's what he came here to do. So this is not an accident. And they're wrong. They're wrong. But, again, is God able to be trusted in those moments of suffering? You bet, because the next thing that he says is, you took me from the womb. You are the one who made me trust, he says, while I was on my mother's breast. This is interesting, because I get the picture here of a baby, right? What does a baby do? It cries. What else does a baby do? It eats. It sleeps. There are other bodily functions that we have to clean up after it, right? Okay? What babies do? But here's the thing. Can a baby do any of those things on its own? It needs to have the care a baby can't give birth to itself. It needs a mother. Even after that baby has been carried in the womb and then delivered by its mother, the baby is still dependent on his mother. And he references that here. He says, this is God, from that very moment of the time that I was born, I was cast upon you, verse 10, from a mother's womb. I was cast upon you. Um, this is the thing. See, when, when we realize that even those moments of suffering and terrible trials, that, that we are cast upon God the way a baby is cast upon its mother. Does that child, does that child have any choice about trusting its mother? Not a single one. And if you've ever met a baby, a newborn baby, you know that nobody is as good as mom. Nobody fits the bill. I remember that when, when Michael was born, you know, and we're new parents, and Paulette had uh, started selling Panther Chef. And she had booked the show, and she was going to do the show. It was, he was a few weeks old. I don't remember exactly how old he was, maybe a couple months or something. I don't know. But I was going to stay home with him and take care of him while she went to do the show. And it was going to be, you know, a night out for her, which is good. And I was like, oh, great, you know. Hang out with my boy, this will be fun, you know. And I knew, and it's not going to be, like, easy because he's going to require care, but that's fine, you know. And, uh, I mean, I held off as long as I could calling her because I knew when I called, she was going to feel like I was telling her. But, I mean, he screamed for, like, two hours. 
And I'm going, okay, you've been changed, you've been sad, I got this, you know, I'm like, everything's right here, I can't, what else am I supposed to do, you know? And he's just screaming at the top of his lungs, and I'm going, I can't handle this, so I call on the phone, I don't even say anything, I just hold the phone, and I'll hear it, she can hear him, you know? She can hear him, and he's just, you know? And you know how that is. She comes home, she goes, I'll, I'll be home as soon as I can. So I endure it for another, you know, half an hour or whatever, she gets her stuff cleaned up, comes home. And, you know, she takes him and he's done. He's good. He didn't need anything. He just wanted mom. And the truth is, that was, you know, I mean, that, that, was, that was fine. It's really the way it's supposed to be. Baby implicitly trusts his mother. He really has no other choice. He's cast upon her. And David says here, Lord, I'm cast upon you the same way that a baby trusts his mother. I have to trust you. I have no other choice, no other option. And I wouldn't choose one if I had one. Because nobody's as good as mom. He says, I can't, I'm, I'm cast upon you. We talked about that. Jesus even highlighted that. Remember Jesus said that if you want to come in, you have to come like a little child. Jesus highlighted the faith of a child as being an illustration of the faith that we must have in God. We've got to believe in God. We've got to trust in Him. We have to be cast upon Him the same way that baby is cast upon his mother. Nowhere else to go for food, for comfort, for help, for protection, for care. And if mom's not around, nobody else is good enough. That's the way it is. So Jesus hanging there on the cross, or David in the midst of his suffering, cries out to the Lord. He says that there in verse 11, Be not far from me, trouble is near, there is none to help. God, there's nobody else. And then he continues, because his suffering is not over, right? And he's talked here about being, being despised and rejected, being mistreated, being mocked and taunted, but there's more to the suffering. Let's read the less or read the next part. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. far from me. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. This is great. And first of all, in those verses we see again, very clearly, the crucifixion of our Savior in view, right? I mean, just look at the description that he gives there. He talks about them piercing his hands and his feet. We know what that was, right? He took nails and they drove them through the wrists and the ankles of Christ. 
to, to attach him to the cross. They weren't worried about him escaping. Those were intended to heighten and magnify the pain and suffering that he endured and to fulfill the prophecy of Scripture. He says in verse 17, I count all my bones. Jesus, the New Testament tells us, was scourged with a brutal whip that would tear open his body, exposing all the way to the bones. It's not a, an exaggeration here. This is how brutal this was. They look and stare at me. Surrounded by crowds of people. We read about some of them in Mark 15. Surrounded by crowds. They stared. Uh, th this is hard for us to understand today, but crucifixion and executions were a spectator sport, if you will, in the ancient world. When Jesus was crucified, he wasn't, he wasn't put in some kind of uh, back lot out of the way. In fact, um, you know, there's disputes about where the exact location is, but there's a place in Jerusalem that's called Gordon's Calvary, um, and it was discovered, discovered uh, you know, by a, a, a British um, military um, uh, man who was retired and went to, went to Israel and was you know, searching for archaeological things. And he happened in, just outside the city of Jerusalem, and it's outside the ancient city wall. Right at the intersection of two of the major roads, it's a hill. And into the side of the hill, there's erosion in the side of the hill that looks like a skull. Now, it's, I've got pictures of it. It's not super clear um, today, but you actually see the, the pictures that were taken in the 1800s of it, and it's even more clear. It's been eroded since then. And you can imagine if you go back in time and see what it might have looked like. Now, the price might have looked like a skull. That might have been why they called it a place of a skull. Hard to say for sure. But right at this intersection of two major highways, right outside the city gate, traffic, coming and going, people coming to do business in the city, and we'll all walk right by them. Up on this hill, overlooking this intersection, overlooking the gate of the city where people would have congregated. And you can imagine them putting the cross there. Today, it's a, it's a bus station. Go through the bus station to the back where all the buses are parked, and go to the back of the parking lot. And you smell the diesel fumes and stand there and look at it. Nobody really commemorates it. The, uh, the Catholic Church actually is another place that they say is where the crucifixion took place, that old thing there. But uh, Gordon's Calvary is it's nothing to look at now, but you can imagine back then that was a place, again, the intersection of two major roads coming into and out of the city of Jerusalem. Huge traffic, crowds walking by, and here is Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, displayed for everyone to see. He talks about it right here in the psalm. Then, verse 18, this is what's really amazing. They divide my garments among them, they cast lots for my clothing. This, by the way, this verse, you can read about that in all four of the Gospels. All four of the Gospels mention this particular 
detail. Okay. You realize, by the way, when David wrote this, we're talking about a thousand years before the crucifixion. Depending on the dates, you know, exact dates, if David wrote this song near the end of his life, then it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,015 to 1,020 years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet, what is he write? The detail. They didn't just tear my clothing off, they didn't just tear it apart, they divided it among themselves and they cast lots for it. When you read the New Testament, you realize that the soldiers looking at these the robes that have been put on Christ and said, Well, these are way too valuable, let's tear apart. Let's cast lots for fulfilling the promise of Scripture. This was the brutality. This was the shame. And so he cries out, You, O Lord, do not be far from me. Hasten to help me. Deliver me. He had talked about them. He described his enemies here being like bulls, like lions, like dogs, deliver me, Lord. Deliver me from the dogs. Deliver me from the lions. I don't even look at verse 14 and 15. He talks about the, the dryness of his mouth being dried up, his heart being melted like wax. I mean, figuratively, he's clearly talking here about his courage. He just, he's got no will to fight. This is completely demoralizing. And yet he cries out for deliverance. But this is where it really gets interesting. Right at the end of verse 21, look at that last line there. Okay. You have answered me. Right? In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, his testimony is, God, you have answered me. Here's what you need to know about the suffering Savior. You and I need to be confident in our prayer hearing God. When David wrote this, he had suffered. Again, I don't think David is making this up, but this is not literally true of David. He was not executed this way. He didn't die this way. And yet, at whatever points in his life when he's writing this, David had been through times of trial and oppression where his enemies had attacked him and surrounded him. And God delivered David. God spared David's life, right? David lived to an old age, died in peace in his own house. He says, you've hurt me. You've answered me. Um, did God answer Jesus? Did God hear the prayer of Christ? What did Jesus pray? Of course, we don't have record of him on the cross praying this way. But of course, he spent the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples praying so hard and so focused and praying with such determination that he sweat drops of blood. And you say, but, but God didn't hear 
Jesus. He didn't save Jesus. He didn't deliver him from his enemies. He allowed him to die. Is, how can we say that, okay, you know, let's be confident in our prayer in hearing God because we pray and he'll deliver us. But he didn't deliver Jesus. Right? He died. Well, God did hear. He did hear his prayer. He did deliver. But he didn't deliver him from death. He delivered him through death from his enemies. You see, this is an altogether different thing. But let's read some more because he turns. This is the hinge. The entire psalm shifts now. See, he says, God, you heard me. So now, what's next? We have the Messiah. He suffered on the cross. He died brutally, but God heard him and delivered him. So what's next? Well, let's listen to what he says after that. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. This is the glorified Savior. This is the glorified Savior. This is the second part now of the psalm. He says there in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren, my brothers. Now what's interesting is, of course, uh, David writing this, who were David's brothers? Well, it was the nation of Israel. David was saying, hey, Lord, I'm going to praise you in the congregation of Israel. I'm going to praise your faithfulness among my brothers. But the interesting thing is, in the New Testament, this verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, and it's spoken by Jesus, who is not ashamed to call us his brothers. It emphasizes the humanity of of Jesus when he became man. I will declare your name to my brethren. Why did Jesus come and become a man? To declare, to reveal God, the Father, to us. That's what this is talking about. So David does this in his own sphere there in Israel, but this is also talking about Christ, who would come and declare to his brothers, those with whom he shared, this mortal flesh. He says, I'm going to praise you. And then he calls upon all those who are there to praise him. He says that, right? Verse 23. If you fear the Lord, praise him. Descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Offspring of Israel, fear him. This is the key here, by the way. These are... These are those who are true followers of the Lord. True followers of the Lord. Descendants of Jacob, offspring of Israel. He's talking, of course, David's writing this and speaking of the Israelites in the Old Testament, but we understand we come to the New Testament and we see that there are those who are the descendants of Abraham in the flesh, Paul talks about, but also those who have the faith. 
and therefore take part in the promise of Abraham that God said you will have offspring, you will have seed like the stars in the sky, and sand in the sea. Paul says, that is our story. See, this is the great thing about what this psalm is telling us, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would die suffering terrible agony on the cross, but he would be glorified and magnified through that suffering. His name would be praised. His name would go and sound abroad. calls on those who follow the Lord to praise him. Praise the Lord. Why? Because he doesn't neglect. He doesn't turn away from those who are suffering. That's what he says in the very next verse, verse 24. He doesn't despise the afflicted. What did he said? Back in verse 6, I'm a worm. I'm a reproach. I'm despised. Our Savior was despised and rejected. But God will never despise or reject us in the midst of our suffering. God doesn't turn us back. He won't. He won't hide his face. He'll hear when we cry. These are the things that verse 24 tells us. This is a glorified Savior. But he continues. He says, not just those who are followers here. He's not just talking about Israel. He's not just talking about those who are already committed. Look at what else he says. This is really cool because he, again, gives us a glimpse at all that the gospel really means here and all the gospel really will do. Let's read on and read the rest of this chapter now. of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. This is really cool. you got to see what he does here. See, in the verses just before that we read, he was focused on the people of Israel. He's focused on those who are already a part of that covenant community, right? Now he steps back and zooms out. And you know what happens? Because Messiah died, because Jesus went to that cross and suffered and died. You know what happens? His fame spreads abroad. All the families of all the nations... He says, listen, this is going to be a worldwide. It's not just the nations, but he says even those who aren't born yet. He talks about that. He says even those who aren't born yet are going to hear this truth and they are going to worship you. That's all in verse 30. Verse 31, those, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. People not even born yet are going to hear the truth and they're going to respond and they're going to worship and they're going to hear about your righteousness. They are going to hear the message. 
and they're going to believe. This is the glory of God as seen in the crucifixion of Christ. Because by dying on that cross in our place, Jesus Christ became the exalted king. He did. That's what he says. That's what he's talking about in these last verses. You're going to be king. All the families of all the nations. This is going to be worldwide. It's not just going to be Israelites. It's not going to be just Jews. It's going to be all the nations. They'll eat and worship. What he describes here, and we don't have time to go into it in great detail, but really from, uh, from verse 25 down to verse 29, he's describing, I think, in the Old Testament, the Thanksgiving uh, sacrifice. Okay? If you go back to the book of Leviticus, you can find this. Um, I won't even uh, guess what chapter. I looked it up this week, but I can't remember, so I won't tell you the wrong one. Uh, if you want to ask about it later, I'll tell you if you want to read it. But he talks about the Thanksgiving offering. What they would do when they bring a Thanksgiving offering is they would bring an animal to the temple or the tabernacle to sacrifice it. This wasn't an offering for sin. This was an offering to say, thank you, Lord, because you've been good to me. Right? And they'd bring this animal, and they would bring it to them, and they would bring along with the animal, they would bring oil, and they would bring grain, and they would bring cakes and bread that they had baked, all of these things to give, and they would bring them, and the priests would take them, and they would wave it before the Lord. It's called a wave offering. They would take it, and they would wave it before the Lord. But they didn't burn it. Well, they didn't burn it. They'd wave it. They didn't eat it. But the problem was they had to be eaten that day, all of them. Well, Jim, what happens when you kill a cow? How much meat do you get out of a cow? You and your wife are going to smell meat that in one day? <laughs> See, you, you sacrifice that animal, and then you bring along with it all these other things. They had to be eaten that same day. Wasn't allowed to be left for the next day. So what are you going to do? What, are you going to invite all your friends, your family, the priests, the Levites? Hey, let's gather around. Let's all sit down. Let's eat this together. Let's celebrate. God has been good. That's what it was. A big celebration. That's what he's describing here. He says, all these people from all the nations, the rich, the poor, we're all going to gather together. We're going to eat and be satisfied and worship the Lord. Why? Why? It's just my favorite part of the whole psalm, the very last line. The very last line of the psalm. Okay. Actually, I guess I should tell you what this point is in the notes. We should rejoice. We should rejoice because we have a merciful and exalted king. He's merciful. He doesn't turn away from us. I mentioned this already. He didn't turn away from us in our affliction. And he has an exalted king. That's what this is talking about. The nation's coming to worship him. But why? You remember when Jesus was on the cross? We read it in Mark 15. The last thing that Jesus said on the cross. It is When you read the last verse of Psalm 22 and you get to that last line, he has done this. This is the message that the people of God proclaim to the world in Psalm 22. This is the message around which all the people gather to worship and celebrate the Lord. It's translated from a single Hebrew word. The word is asah. 
just means it is done. That's what the last line of this psalm means. It is done. Jesus hanging on the cross. It is done. I can't prove it. But I suspect that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, this verse is what he was referencing. Final closing line of this song. It is done. It's finished. This is the message that we proclaim. This is the message that we get to tell to our children and our grandchildren and to everyone that comes after us. You know something? The Messiah, he went to the cross and he suffered brutally and he died. God heard his prayer. And now he is exalted. It is finished. It's done. That is the message that God's people declare. And that's how this psalm comes to an end. He has done it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in his death, Jesus Christ did it. He finished it. He completed the work. That's the message that we need to come away with when we read Psalm 22. He has done it. Will you trust him? Will you believe in him? Will you receive what he has done on your behalf? That's what the gospel is. Understand that Jesus died for you. He has done it. Will you believe? Will you be cast on him like that child is cast on its mother's breast? He has done it. Our response is to trust in him and rejoice because he's done it. Let's pray.